All right, welcome back. This is the Faultline Podcast. This is the podcast that is going through a company issue 862. Yes, we're really, really old. Joining me today is our editor, Thomas Flanagan. Hello. And Rafi Cohen, who helps me, Alex Davis, out on the Rethink TV side of things. Hello. So, yeah, Tommy, mad week, right? Did you call me Thomas this week in the intro? I think I did, yeah. That's a new one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Not yeah, formal. crazy week. Um, we were juggling... Uh, Broadband World Forum and um, Cable Tech Expo in the US this week in two very different time zones. I don't know whose idea it was to put those on at the same time, but yeah, that was that was knackering. Um, but, but before we get stuck into the, the lead story this week, a quick update on uh, last week, because um, some drama unfolded uh, after, after the plume stuff, and we did eventually find out... Um, after recording the podcast and publishing the article that Plume is still involved at Comcast. But the uh, the CEO said some not very nice things in an email, which I won't repeat on uh, the podcast because we're better than that. Um, but all it all it took was uh, was a was an easy email to, to let us know that the contract was still there and and there we go. We've got a relationship now, so it was all good. Actually boys, what do you think? Should I uh, share with our listeners what what um, they said to us, or should we keep that in the locker? See, I think we do have something fairly weapons grade in the locker, <laughs> like separate from that. So I think just sit on it. But yeah, like to to your point, Tommy, it is immensely frustrating when you just want a simple yes no answer. We're not even asking for a lot of time. We just want to know whether something is still in place. Mm-hmm. And you reach out and you hit a wall of silence. So, yeah, sometimes we have to speculate, go with our gut, and it leads to situations like this. And if you are like Plume and you ignore people, then I don't think you have any right to be ass blasted when when stuff <laughs> like this happens. So, yeah, exactly. Um, it's not like it went in the junk folder either. They said um, that they were they were planning to reply and then decided they didn't, and then saw the headline and went, "Uh oh, we should have replied." Exactly. So, yep. there we go. Anyway, to the lead story this week, um, it was actually, this is a, a very contrasting week in terms of CEOs, from one very mean CEO, <laughs> to, to, I spoke to two very nice chaps, the CEO of uh, VSATcast and uh, the CEO of Spectrum Evolution on the, um, on the same call, which came about after I received a press release talking about ATSC 3.0 and using uh, network function virtualization and edge caching and lots of these nice buzzwords. But it was all a bit convoluted and garbled. I didn't really know what was going on. So I got on a call with them to give me the lowdown. And um, before these aren't these aren't names that are very familiar in the, in the Faultline ecosystem or the ATSC ecosystem for that matter. They're both relatively new companies led by wireless industry veterans and are almost operating still in stealth mode. But um, Spectrum owns a whole bunch of Spectrum, as the name suggests. Um, so basically what they've done, they've recently completed 60 days of trials on what they've called the first touchless deployment of an IP multicast broadcast internet service, which basically means deploying the infrastructure required for ATSC 3.0 service remotely without the physical equipment or engineers. So... VSATcast contributed its satellite CDN platform and combined with Spectrum. Spectrum, so that basically kind of cuts out traditional broadcast infrastructure and using a prototype home gateway can then 
deliver and store that content at the network edge. Well, in this case, the, the edge is the home gateway, so it's caching it on the device itself. Anyway, that takes a massive burden off the core ISP network, which in the current climate is very important. And um, they basically want to just kind of disrupt the current status quo around ATSC 3.0 services used by the current crop of broadcasters. And because these guys aren't linear broadcasters, they're not restricted to the same business models or the same regulations. Regulation has been a huge um, hurdle for for these guys, by the way. The FCC has just recently said that it wants 5% of all revenues um, for these supplementary services, which is a real ball ache for them. Uh, And similarly, they're not restricted to the same technologies that the broadcasters are. So um, the but there were a few fault line regular names involved in this project, like Broadpeak, sorry, which supplies its nano CDN and multicast ABR. We've got Anensis, which is handling the virtualized architecture, Alticast for middleware, and Bitrooter for the uh, receiver software stack, and obviously Azure for the cloud infrastructure. So basically the clever part of what they've done is virtualize a bunch of components in the transmission chain. And I mean, I'm no expert on NFV. I mean, you should head over to Wireless Watch for insights uh, into the intricacies of blending broadcast and cellular and network slicing and clever things like that. We just mess about here at Voltline. And um, basically the the NFE, we're using NFE, they, they've made an important step in deploying the broadcast uh, component for 5G networks. And that brought us to the part um, of the conversation about mobile. And it just so happens that Sinclair's One Media this week delivered a, a, a new ATSC 3.0 capable smartphone, which is about three and a half years after they um, first um, struck the deal to develop the chipsets with uh, Sankia Labs. So, um, by the way, we've been quite vocal critics of Next Gen TV, as it's also known, if, you, if you're not really familiar with Faultline's coverage on it. And, uh, and these guys, broadcasters and regulators, have been dragging their feet for years, and the opportunity basically looks like it's just disappearing in front of our eyes, as everyone's got more used to, to viewing pure play OTT video and don't really see the need for hybrid broadcast broadband networks um, such as this. But at the same time, People in this industry are saying that um, the p- pandemic has kind of reminded people that um, things like local news services are really important when uh, internet infrastructure goes down, and that's a, a key component of of the hybrid broadcast broadband network. So uh, basically, uh, to finish, what the next step is, that there's going to be more trials and demos of these gateways coming before the end of this year, which they call dog food trials, and then... Next year, we've got uh, commercial deployments promised. So there we go. So have we turned a corner then? Are we like now sort of excited about ATSC 3.0? Because before, we definitely weren't. Potentially. They have instilled a, a bit of confidence that, yeah, that we might be onto something here, and it's not all doom and gloom. All right, we'll keep our eyes peeled. Ensured me that there is a load of money in it still. But that is the key part. I'm still a little bit sceptical about how much money there actually is. Cynically optimistic. All right. Always. So, so moving on to our next article. So, Rafi, this week you were looking at a Disney offshoot, right? Truex pushes Gimbal to front of queue for CTV ad data. So tell us more. Yeah, so um, regular listeners will remember that about two weeks ago, I think I discussed on the podcast... Um, 
Disney selling off one of uh, 21st Century Fox's assets, which was an ad tech company, Truex. They do um, location-based data marketing. Uh, they do some cool stuff, like they can um, keep track of when people who've seen ads visit certain points of interest. For instance, if you see like an ad for a car dealership, they can tell whether or not you've actually been to the car dealership um, through the location on your smartphone. Um, and then, so we covered the acquisition uh, two weeks ago, but that was kind of looking at what the next steps for Disney were. And then this week I got the chance to um, catch up with the CMO of the company that's acquired Turex, which is um, Gimbal. And um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because really Gimbal have no real reason to be acquiring a CCTV ad company. Um, they do mobile and display ads. Uh, yeah, they do the kind of location based stuff. And um, yeah, uh, the CMO, Matt Russo, was telling me how they kind of, this is the first TV company they've ever taken on. And essentially they want to expand their footprint in CTV because they've seen CTV and OTT blowing up since COVID and they kind of want to get in on that market. Um, and they see it as potentially the first of more TV acquisitions. And I, one of the main things they get from this is that they get pushed to the front of the queue for um, all of Truex's publisher inventory. So Truex has like a basically a first preference of any inventory of any of their content publishers because of the type of ads they run. Truex runs like active engagement ads whereby the audience has to, you know, respond to the advert, either answering a survey or, I don't know, getting involved, choosing an ad. And in return for that, they get some kind of value proposition or reward, like they might get three hours of watching with no adverts. Um, and firstly, advertisers pay way more for this format because an engaged audience is much better than a passive one. Um, and also it means that the publishers are more responsive to Truex's demands and always give them first preference because they get more money. Um, so yeah, firstly, Gimbal is now getting a whole new ad inventory and they're getting first dibs on basically anything there. And on top of that, they get an, a whole nother source of data inputs for their uh, marketing, basically. They, you know, they've got all the IP addresses and watching preferences of all these households, which Truex is advertising to. And that just kind of feeds in more broadly to the, the whole uh, ad data ecosystem that they're trying to build. Um, and yeah, the other interesting thing about Truex's ad format is that they charge per engagement, not per impression, which is also a lot more favorable for publishers. And that means that uh, if an audience member decides not to engage with an ad, uh, then it just reverts to a traditional ad and Truex don't get any money for that. Um, so it's a lot less low risk for publishers. Um, but yeah, this was it was just quite an interesting chat because it was a company that you wouldn't really expect at all to be acquiring um, some, something in the CTV realm. And what it really showed was how, you know, as... Uh, advertising dollars move away from physical mediums and linear uh, kind of all the residual digital bits of advertising are all going to be crossing wires increasingly as you know all the all the data is you know pushed together to make kind of first like much more wide-reaching campaigns but also much more granular targeting got you yeah i remember gimbal from my internet of things days where they were pretty big in bluetooth beacons and i, I guess there was no uh no marketing friendly hype beast uh, mentions of you know TV everywhere uh, mm. sensor enabled advertising no nothing nothing like that no no pretty straight didn't, down didn't hear any of that yeah <laughs> fair enough all right good stuff so also from my IoT days I spent a lot of time writing about AI based computing and and how FPGAs and ASICs and whatnot were going to come and and steal Intel's lunch and uh, I got to do that again this week. Uh, on the sort of rumours that AMD is now officially buying Xilinx for $30 billion. Um, these are rumours that cropped up a few weeks ago, and they've resurfaced now. Uh, and neither party wants to speak to us, which is usually a good sign that 
there is substance to these rumors. Uh, so yeah, a thirty billion dollar deal would give AMD, which is a resurgent CPU and GPU maker, a pretty decent chance at stealing a, a lot more market share from Intel uh, using Xilinx's uh, FPGAs. So these are silicon chips that you can sort of reprogram to do different functions. So a bit like cloud computing, you can spin up different instances to fit different applications with the FPGA. The promise is that you can deploy it in a server. And then when your application shifts, you can then reprogram the field reprogrammable gateway uh, and turn it into something else effectively. So you don't have to go and sort of visit the server and swap chips out and change memory configurations. This is something that you can just do remotely. So that's quite important in the data center for our sort of video context because so much of the video workload is, is now sort of happening in data centers, whether that's the sort of encode and transcode, then the transport through CDNs and sort of finally the last mile delivery. So this has been pretty interesting to kind of follow. Uh, and for Intel, it's just another year where they've sort of looked completely adrift. Uh, and they spent $17 billion back in 2015 to buy Altera. And the, it looks like they've done very little with it. Um, NVIDIA has sort of emerged as a, a sort of a rival there. And Intel's special kind of AI-based you know, Xeon CPU lineup has just not taken off. So yeah, Intel's flailing, AMD's sort of coming back and I think it could be a fairly influential deal. But it's one of those ones which is just gonna sort of trickle on for a few years and then you know one day we'll wake up and we'll see that Intel is sort of you know, let it all slip away. Uh which would be quite good I think. Intel's been on top for too long. It'd be nice to see an underdog come to the fore. So that that's about the gist of it really and now we'll we'll turn our sort of attention to the the shorter sharper stuff. So the worth noting section will kick off with our sort of five years ago. So Rafi, what was happening back then? Um, so Dish Network and the National Association of Broadcasters, or the NAB, had uh, come out to fight against the three-way merger of Charter, Time Warner Cable, and Bright House Networks. Um, they kind of were both coming at it from different angles. The NAB weren't really attacking Charter specifically too much. They just kind of didn't really want any mergers to go ahead until there was a full review of media ownership in the US. Um, but Dish were being a lot more targeted. They were really worried that um, broadband dominance would give Charter a vested interest to prevent OTT from you know, developing to you know, the maturity that it's at today. Uh, this was probably concerned, this was probably fueled by its concerns that uh, for its own uh, OTT platform, Sling TV, um, but, you know, and while they were just kind of hammering the same point again and again, that broadband dominance wasn't going to be good for this new format, uh, it kind of was a worthwhile point. Make, uh, it was a point worth making because com the recent Comcast and TWC merger had sunk basically because of the same accusations that it would have been too uh, dominant in the broadband sector. But unfortunately, it kind of looked like Dish was going to be too demanding with its remedies. Uh, these included things like unbundling charters broadband and MVPD businesses, restricting Charter's domination of third-party video rights and forcing Charter to offer rival video bundles. And ultimately, we couldn't see the FCC being anywhere near that strict, uh, considering the deal was an easy way to consolidate cable power in the US. And also, uh, the headline piece in that week's issue from five years ago was another rumble with the FCC between Comcast and uh, a whole load of regulatory bodies. So there was a lot going down five years ago at the FCC. Yeah, it was a, a fairly turbulent time from memory. Uh, and it still is, to be fair. 
Yeah, well, um, speaking of Charter, we've got a really juicy story this week in um, in Faultline on uh, a panel at Cable Tech Expo featuring the CEO of Charter, Tom Rutledge, who uh, was on the panel with um, Comcast CEO and Liberty Global CEO. And that was really juicy, so yeah, check that out. Yeah, and my little hat tip this week, it's not in worth noting, and I've only just sort of discovered it. And it's something I'm going to go digging into, but it does seem that the firm that is lined up to purchase DirecTV from AT&T, which is Apollo Global Management, uh, has pretty strong CEO ties to Jeffrey Epstein. So I'm, I'm going to go pull <laughs> those threads and, and see what comes out, because uh, that could be quite fun, I think. Um, so yeah, that's been the Faultline podcast. But Tommy, what's coming up next week? Next week... Yeah, we've got um, a catch-up with some more of the French Mafia. Uh, this time we got Soft at Home. Um, well overdue a catch-up with them, um, seeing what they've been up to at the Virtual Broadband World Forum and and uh, uh, winning a recent deal in Denmark with Telenor, I think. And um, hopefully, actually, in, interviewing the CEO of uh, Z5 at some point next week, which is a really exciting, fast-growing uh, Indian OTT service. So, uh, yeah, lots to look forward to. Excellent stuff. All right, so make sure you head to our website, www.rethinkresearch.biz. There you can find free trials for Faultline. You can also check out Rethink TV, which is the fault. Uh, the forecasting arm uh, we're currently putting together a forecast on what we're sort of initially calling next generation custom service software uh, so it's basically OSS BSS CRP uh, sorry uh, ERP CRM and whatnot so if, if you're involved in there please reach out to uh, Rafi Cohen uh, or myself Alex Davis uh, this has, has been a, a pretty pretty decent week, pretty hectic. So we'll see you next time. Maybe not as frazzled, but no promises. So that's it for now. Bye bye. See ya. <laughs> Cheers then. <laughs>